Welcome to Useful Outsiders, brought to you by the Council for International Development. Kia ora tato, no mai haere mai, and welcome to this SID talk, Climate and the Pacific, Response, Recovery and Resilience. Call Amy Richardson Tokuingua. I am Amy Richardson, Save the Children's Communications Director, and I'm honoured to be facilitating this afternoon's event. The Pacific region is a hotspot for climate-related disasters and environmental challenges. With the increasing intensity and frequency of extreme weather events, Pacific Islands nations face growing threats to their infrastructure, ecosystems and communities. There is an urgent need to build resilience, improve disaster risk recovery capabilities and facilitate long-term climate adaptation in the region. Pacific nations are connected by the threat of climate change, all experiencing acute national disasters, which are part of a prolonged ongoing crisis. Indigenous communities and development and humanitarian aid programs have accumulated valuable knowledge and experience in dealing with these challenges. And it's vital to create a platform for dialogue, exchange of ideas and joint learning. And that's why we've brought together some excellent people from across the region to discuss and share best practices and innovations in climate adaptation and disaster risk recovery. Likely you'll be no stranger to these names and faces um, and they're here to share their expertise. So let's start by meeting our panelists. Um, I'm gonna hand over first to Tim to say hello to everyone. Hello everyone, um, my name is Kim Cook. I'm the Pacific Regional Director for Save the Children. Really excited to have this time with um, the CID group today and, um, and to talk about this really important topic on climate change. I think the fact that it's important goes without saying. <clears throat> and because there's so much being said about it um, in the Pacific right now and globally, I think for me, it's important that we all have a clear and strong voice on this as an NGO community and have a voice in that discussion. Um, and civil society, all of us on this call, we represent so often the voices of so many that are overlooked by the decision makers and, and big decisions are being made right now. Um, so for me and for Save the Children, it's particularly important that the voices of children and youth matter and are not overlooked. The children and youth are the ones that will bear the brunt of climate change, way more than any of us will on this call, um, except maybe Camille. Sorry, Camille. Um, <laughs> And they deserve to have an understanding of the issues an opinion on the issues and to input on the decisions around climate investments and priorities. And even more so, I think the children in the Pacific deserve to be kind of front and center of this dialogue. So looking forward to talking more about it and, and thank you. Thanks so much, Kim. And that's a great um, introduction there into Camille. Um, do you want to say hello to everyone, Camille? Yeah. Kia ora, I am Camille, I'm from Whanganui Ātara, I am 17 and I am the youth, well one of the youth ambassadors for Generation Hope slash Save the Children New Zealand and I'm here specifically to give like more of a youth perspective on this issue or more of a like a youth-based knowledge or understanding to this huge water issue that doesn't just affect youth but um will affect the younger people, I reckon, more than older people in the long run. So I'm excited to hear and listen and contribute a little as well. So that's me. Thanks so much, Camille. Um, Nina. 
I'm Head of Programs with Caritas Aotearoa New Zealand and yeah, really delighted to be invited to, to join this, this panel. I suppose um, I spent a number of years in the Pacific, so have a, a real soft spot for what, what I consider my adopted home, where impacts are really a day-to-day -day, uh, reality. Uh, and then I'm I'm based in the the north in Kaipara for those of you who know New Zealand, and um, and likewise it's a day to day reality for a lot of people in this part of New Zealand. So I suppose I find working in this sector, but also the places which I call home and the future of of my my children and our friends and family, um, it's something which which I I feel really lucky to be able to be sitting in in that intersectionality I suppose between the geographies and also the, the role that I'm in. Kia ora. thank you, Nina. Um, Siali, I've, I seem to have lost you up on the top of my screen, but I'm hoping that you're there somewhere. I'm still here. Uh, my name is uh, Emeline Siali Lolahia. People uh, uh, mostly known me by, by Siali. And, and so it's about four years now that I had moved from Tonga to be based here in Fiji, in Suva, uh, working as the executive director of the Pacific Islands Association of Non-Governmental Organizations, known as Piango. Uh, we are a regional platform of national umbrella NGOs. We are present in 24 countries and territories in the Pacific. We are not as the usual traditional humanitarian uh, actors uh, or organizations as most uh, people known uh, for example red cross and other uh, other humanitarian organizations uh, but we we had always been part of bringing civil society voices to public policy spaces uh, and recently we have started picking up the work on humanitarian response, particularly because of the climate uh, change related disaster, has actually, I would say, demand uh, much more uh, participations of, of the general civil society. And we play a critical role as our strength in terms of coordinations, bringing civil society and others to uh, participate in the humanitarian space and landscape. Uh, but more so making sure that the, the, the living experience of our community are part and parcel of making sure that policies are linked to people. Naka. Naka, thank you. Um, so we're going to start with uh, the challenge that we are all facing. Pacific communities have identified climate change as the single greatest threat the Pacific faces, and you'll see the climate crisis unfolding in different ways. Several Pacific Island nations will likely become uninhabitable this century. Climate emergencies are on the rise. Siali was just telling us before uh, we began about the cyclone that has hit Fiji right now, and I know that the, the team um, in Vanuatu have been responding to uh, the cyclone Lola as well. Okay, so we're going to um, start with Siali to give us her insights into how climate change is impacting the communities you're working with in the Pacific. Thank you, Amy. 
I think we have talked a lot about how we have seen the impact of climate change in our region. But, but what we have also recognized that the climate changes has been, uh, since it's been announced by our Pacific leaders to be the most threatening to our Pacific and the lives of our people. It has also been one thing that we have seen that our Pacific leaders united when they speak as one voice, for example, at the UN you know, platform at the global level. Um, however, we also noted the huge gaps in the displacement and dispositions of climate change information being translated to the community and our local people. Uh, because we still, we still consider climate change as a scientific and you know, technical information. Uh, but when you really go into the community, they know, they, they, they experience, their living experience of the impact of climate change is there. And so that really speaks to how we have now shaped the way that we do our work is to make sure that we embrace the understanding and the knowledge of our community uh, to be part and parcel of how we shape policies and how we bring that to the, to the forefront uh, of making sure that they're part of the decision-making when it comes to humanitarian. Our, uh, a lot of effort has been invested in and I must say that this is uh, uh, both from INGOs, uh, government donor agencies, and local civil society. The work that they have been doing in the disaster preparedness has been has been contributing to how community understand the impact of climate change, uh, and, and so that has that has really also bridged the gap in terms of how disaster initiative, disaster preparedness initiative, community experiences because they are the, the frontliners of responding. So the urgent need to build resilience and improve disaster risk recovery capacity and facilitate long-term climate adaptation in the region cannot be re-emphasized enough because this is where the investment need to go. Uh, the complexity of climate-related disaster is now grounded on sensitive issues that our region had not been able to address in the past. For example, the power struggle in uh, the role of women, uh, you know, the vulnerability that has been, you know, brought to the front because of the, you know, loss of uh, housing infrastructure that speaks to where does women's voice in terms of the rebuilding of housing when in our, in our legislation in the Pacific, we still have women don't access to land. They don't have a say. Uh, and so the ownership of the natural resources just speaks to communal ownership uh, that majority of those making those decisions are men. Uh, where are our children, our young people in that in that complexity uh, of our of our governance system within our community uh, when we know that that this kind of work need to be embracing the diversity voices of our community. So that's uh, perhaps in a, in, a, in a nutshell, the things that we need to bring to the table now, you know, in terms of safeguarding of our children, the decision that we are making now, we might be thinking of humanitarian as just one silo. No, we need to bring that to the bigger picture of how our region are considering the response that they need to have in place in terms of climate-related disaster. I'll, I'll end there, Amy, 
uh, and let the others speak. Thank you. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. I think that raising um, that issue around some of those marginalised voices um, leads into our question for for you, Kim, um, around the impact of, of climate change, change on the lives of children and their families and that climate crisis as being a, a children's rights crisis. Can you speak to that for us? Absolutely. Um, and very much echoing what Cialia said about of really making sure that the right voices are around these decisions. You know, as I mentioned before, having children at the center is, is critical to making the right decisions and they have a right to participate and have a voice. Um, but let me start broadly and just say that climate change is an, it's an existential threat um, to everyone, but especially to children. Um, we're talking about an issue that is multiplying existing development and humanitarian crises while also simultaneously generating new crisis, um, crises. So 1 billion children, that's nearly half of children around the world live in countries that are at extreme risks of the impacts of climate change, but of course no child or person is, um, is immune from it. And, and yet these children have contributed the least to the climate crisis. We know in the Pacific, the most disaster prone region in the world that, that children will experience a 320% increase in disasters over the next 20 years. Um, and I think, you know, that's a statistic that we feel as a reality um, right now. Um, I think we all do. Vanuatu has just experienced its third severe cyclone this year already. Um, I was there myself um, earlier this year when Kevin and Judy hit, and it's scary. Um, the Pacific is used to cyclones, yes, um, but that doesn't make them any less frightening or more or less damaging, um, especially for children. Cyclones destroy houses, gardens, schools, clinics. Um, it impacts children's access to water, um, to, to food, um, not just in the immediate term, but in the long term as well, um, making issues around health, um, you know, even more pressing. So this is, you know, the climate crisis it, it is a child rights crisis. Um, in, in child rights terms, we would say that children have a right to feel safe and protected, but you have to ask how safe can they be if their very homes, if, if their parents' livelihoods are constantly under threat. Um, we say that children have a right to live a healthy life, um, but climate change is among the greatest public health threats to children's survival. Um, climate change damages the environment, it impacts the provision of food, safe water, clean air, and it is leading to, we know, more disease and malnutrition. We know that children have a right to develop and to be educated, um, and yet all of the great investments that we've been making um, in schools are being undermined um, by climate-related disasters. And, you know, we have to ask, are our schools and our education systems preparing our children for the future, for a climate uncertain future? Um, is the curriculum ready for, um, for that future? And finally, coming right back around, children have the right to participate. Um, and I think as a civil society, we have an important role to play in creating a space for that and lifting up the voices of children who have that right to speak out about climate change. Um, and it requires you know, not just a climate response, but a, a child rights response in my mind. Thanks so much, Kim. And I think when we'll come come to some of those points later on in the conversation too around visibility of children in this space, um, particularly when we 
look um, at policy and things like that. Camille, uh, we've spoken already about some of the impacts <laughs> of climate change on on children's health, um, but children's mental health is particularly um, an area where uh, climate change is impacting. Um, we have seen an increase in what is referred to as climate anxiety. Um, can you tell us about some of the ways that climate change impacts children and youth's well-being um, and where you might see any potential for solutions? Mm. Cool, thank you. Um, I just wanted to start by saying that as someone who has, I would say, personally experienced climate anxiety myself, I just wanted to extend a lot of empathy to anyone experiencing it because it's an issue and a type of anxiety or just a feeling that anyone can have and a lot of people, and I'm guessing a lot of people on this call that are already engaged in this issue, have felt. And I also just wanted to say that that makes a lot of sense because as Kimberly was saying, we are facing an existential threat with climate change and it affects our ability to fear, feel secure in our day-to-day -day lives. But also when we think towards our own futures, there's a lot of less stability than maybe there has been in the past. And that is simply put anxiety inducing and that makes sense. Um, and I think anxiety is a natural response. If you look back at humans biology to be like, we don't feel safe, like our own survival, our day-to-day survival could be compromised and that makes us feel like flight or fight mode um and I think the feeling of anxiety what I what I take hope from from all this is that the feeling of anxiety can make you freeze up and go into freeze mode or it can make you go into flight mode and you can run away from the problems and you don't want to get engaged and you want to hide and that makes sense but at the same time anxiety and climate anxiety can also lead you into fight mode and really stir you to action you don't want to have an uncertain future you want to feel hopeful you want what's best for oppressed communities and malnourished communities and all people around the world and so you fight for it you go to petitions you saw you go to protests sorry you sign petitions and that anxiety and that like strength of feeling in, in you can actually serve a greater purpose and be stoking a fire of action and so that's what I think a lot of youth have felt and a lot of youth have translated um, their feelings of anxiety into if you look at things like school strike for climate that I've been a part of where there was like 170,000 youth striking across the country um, going on like marches and stuff taking that anxiety that makes sense but at the same time has the potential to be taken from a negative thing to a thing that actually benefits climate change and the fight against climate change I would say so yeah. Thanks so much, Camille. That's it's great to hear, and I love that the word hope is um, is something that I think that we all ho hope for, <laughs> and it's um, it's amazing to see in you and and many of the um, young people that you're working with. So thank you so much for sharing that, um, Nina. Let's talk about um, you. You've spent more than a decade living in Fiji, Tonga, and Samoa. Um, and you've experienced climate emergencies firsthand. Um, and Caritas also works across the Pacific. So how would you describe the impact of climate change on the communities you're working with? Thanks, Amy. Yeah, I, I think that there's, there's two different elements that I wanted to highlight. And one, I suppose, is around 
this this idea of resilience, you know, and resilience and, and innovation and communities coming together. And that was a great phrase that Camille talked about, stoking a fire of action. Uh, and I think that there there is there's so much going on. And I suppose in my experience, um, I guess focusing on emergencies, you know, which we know are increasing in severity, are increasing in frequency as a result of this of climate change. But in these sort of emergency contexts, you know, people are not uh, are not thinking beyond sort of let's get get prepared, let's get cleaned up, and let's you know respond. How are our neighbours? How are people going? You know, so there's this real community, um, this community drawing together. You know, this, this sense of of strength. Um, but this is being impacted by by bigger picture things as well. And I remember one of the most um, that affected me the most personally was um, TC Evan in 2012 in Samoa. And I lived up the road from the, the area that was really just wiped out by severe floods from that cyclone. I don't know if anyone remembers it, but the, the, the most severe part of that was the flooding which came from that, that cyclone. And, you know, later sort of in the weeks that came out, it was sort of came out that there'd been a lot of deforestation, you know, up sort of on the mountain in that area, um, you know, because it had, hadn't happened before and this river had been there for a long time and lots of questions were being asked. But I think that the, there's these bigger sort of forces, you know, that are at play, whether it's deforestation or whether it's to do with the, the changing frequency and the changing severity. Um, and that these are the things which I think we need to, to call us to action as well. And these are things which despite, you know, this amazing resilience and the amazing innovation which, which is taking place at a community and at national and international level, I think there's still a responsibility, you know, and this, this call to action, um, it still should sit really firmly with us and more more close to home, just up here in the North Hokianga, someone's a comment that someone made where we had a, a water project, um, the community here who, who really don't have access to safe drinking water, there's no main supply. And, um, you know, in the community that was surveyed, it was found that 97%, so almost everybody didn't have access to safe drinking water. Uh, and people would sort of make jokes and, oh, you know, well, our stomachs are really strong and, you know, isn't this, we've, we've grown up with this. But then at the same time, one person speaking sort of said, yes, but it's not good enough. You know, and I think that that, that really hit home for me. Yes, we can have amazing resilience. Yes, we can have this incredible innovation which is taking place. Uh, and we see this through the work of many, many of the international NGOs. There's incredible work going on at a community level. Um, but at the same time, we still can't shy away from the fact that it's not good enough. It's not good enough that they're being affected so severely and that this is, you know, a constant reality of day-to-day of -day life. Mm. What, what, what role do you think um, New Zealand-based NGOs have in addressing these challenges? Yeah, I think that it's it's really important for us to ask ourselves this question, you know, that we should constantly be, be be finding our place as well. And I know within Caritas, Caritas uh, is the second largest humanitarian agency in the world, 162 in the Confederation. So um, just a bit smaller than, than Red Cross, but the approach that's taken in Caritas is that it's, it's locally led, you know, so there's our local partners are the ones responding. So it's very community level, it's very grassroots. 
Um, but it's that linkage, you know, so it's that linkage between between us sitting here in New Zealand having this conversation and our, you know, the broader Fano of the world that that are, are like Siali sitting on this call, you know, in Fiji, there's a cyclone hitting them right now. You know, we should be deeply concerned and it should be a spur to action for us in the context of these emergencies and in the preparedness aspect. So I suppose, um, and this is this is a great photo of the Caritas Tonga team um, after the, the volcanic eruption. They they organized crops to be delivered to those islands where their, their crops had been wiped out. And it was um, found to be you know, really important for morale as well as a food source to be able to eat the foods which they, they were used to and enjoyed. Uh, and this was a local community connection, you know, so this was a, a, a branch, a, one of the local Caritas uh, committees, you know, they took turns, each committee from each area took turns and sending each month supplies to the affected areas. And it's this sort of local response, you know, this local ability to be able to, to connect that I think that the ironically the international ones have a, have a space to to create right and to be able to to make sure that they have the resources to make sure that there's the preparedness work that goes into this um you know we we know that for every dollar that's invested prior to an emergency it's up to 10 times that's going to be saved you know in the re, in the re response mode so it's really important that we we are reinforcing that we are providing this messaging and that we are um, we're enabling for investment to be put in in preparedness and DRR at this at this early stage. So I think we have a really important role. Fantastic. And and let's on that, let's talk about disaster preparedness and disaster risk reduction. Um, so how do we ensure that that communities are better prepared to cope with the climate emergencies that are increasing? And how are we ensuring that those opportunities are inclusive and equal for all communities or for all members of the communities to ensure that, you know, people with disabilities, for instance, have access to trainings? Kim, are you happy to talk to this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I can boil it down, I think, to what I would say is two steps. You need information, 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 um, better and more, getting to, you know, the right people um, all the way to communities and the most vulnerable families in those communities. You need, um, and then they need resources, um, money, technical support um, to drive the solutions that they come up with. Um, that to me is the, the very basic bones of good disaster preparedness and risk reduction. Um, you know, we're doing this in different ways, lots of fun buzzwords like um, anticipatory action, where we're looking at triggers for um, uh, potential disasters in the future and, and giving um, cash and support um, ahead of those disasters for, for communities and particularly, again, the, the vulnerable people in the community. Um, we're doing things like child-centered DRR and preparing schools. Um, but I'll give one deep dive example um, from our new Green Climate Fund program in Vanuatu that I think really encapsulates the kind of disaster preparedness work we want to be doing more. So um, Save the Children has recently kicked off a, the Vanuatu Community-Based Climate Resilience Project, or BCCRP, it's a nice little acronym. Um, and uh, we work with what we call another great acronym, the um, Community uh, disaster and climate change committees or 
CDCCC. So basically it's a, it's a group from the community that is representative. And the first step in an answer to your question about how do we make that, how do we make these processes inclusive is these groups, you know, need to be inclusive themselves, right? So making sure that whoever is representing and making decisions and actioning solutions at the community level that they, that the right people are around in that group, children themselves, people with disabilities, you know, I think women um, all need to have a, a place. And as a, again, as a NGO community, we, we need to be pushing for that. Um, and then once you have those groups, it's about connecting them with more and better climate information services and early warning systems. So providing a sense of education on climate change, um, you know, putting a, a, a bit of a framing to what Ciale, you know, said earlier around, this is not something that communities don't already know. Um, it's more just helping to give them the right information and more scientific information around um, their existing knowledge um, and then helping them to plan around that. Um, so developing community adaptation plans with those groups and then making sure that the plans themselves are inclusive. And if you have the right people making the decisions around that, um, then, you know, differently abled um, children and youth, women, those those ideas are those plans are already built into um, being inclusive. And we support them, the communities to implement those plans. Um, we help them with technical knowledge on nature-based solutions, climate resilient livelihoods, agriculture, fisheries. Um, we work with them on things like food preservation and processing women's economic empowerment. What the solutions come from the communities and we provide the technical support to help them make those a reality. And I think the last kind of key element of, of good disaster preparedness is ensuring that those solutions are sustainable by connecting those communities with local government. Um, so making sure that government teams are participating in the entire process and that the community groups are connected into the decisions that local government are making on priorities and funding um, so that those priorities and funding are informed um, by those who are most vulnerable and by the communities themselves. Um, so we support local government with integrating climate change adaptation practices into their planning and budgeting, and then connect the, that up the chain from community level um, to provincial level to national level and ideally to regional level. Fantastic. Thanks, Kim. Siali, how do we um, ensure that knowledge, that this kind of knowledge across the sector and best practices are shared across the region and is there any way that we could improve in this space? Thank you, thank you Amy. Um, a, a, perhaps a quick uh, sharing from uh, what we have established. Uh, a part of our localization agenda work um, that, that Piango has, uh, has been leading uh, that we established what we call FALE, which stands for Facility Aiding Locally Led Engagement. Uh, and we have established uh, uh, the FALE work in six countries, Tonga, Fiji, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, Kiribati, and Samoa. Uh, there's a couple of uh, other countries still requesting that we uh, reach out to them. So the, the FALE work focuses on three things. One is setting up traditional systems, uh, and this is building on our existing work uh, around the, our umbrella NGOs and how they're connected to local uh, NGOs at the country level, uh, which we recognize that a lot of our humanitarian systems are government-led 
but oftentimes when it comes to a disaster struck, uh, struck the country, our, our humanitarian system often uh, disrupted the delay, the response. Uh, and so what we also find is that some of our, our humanitarian system comes all the way down to provincial or subnational level. And, and often our traditional system bridge that gap um, from that kind of work into the community. And we're talking about the churches, we're talking about you know, um, traditional systems uh, that, that we have in almost across our Pacific. The other one is looking into the, the skill sets uh, that our community has in terms of their response. Uh, if the scenario is that like in COVID, no movement, no nothing, the national system does not come through, how do we make sure that our community has that? So that kind of level of, um, you know, the previous uh, uh, sharing uh, around capacity building, but this is much more skill set. Where does that fit in? And interesting enough, what is coming out is that we need to look into how our labor mobility system uh, is kind of taking away the manpower within our community, our young people, uh, you know, participating in the uh, seasonal working scheme uh, that a number of humanitarian response uh, recently have seen our community being crippled because our young people are not there uh, to play that role. But also we have seen the women's gender role of women is being doubled. Um, they are now taking much more of the, you know, response um, when when the young people and even their husbands uh, are absent uh, from from that kind of uh, community system. The last one is the prepositions of funding, the anticipatory actions, which really speaks to where do we see the trigger points that 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 uh, speak to community response. Uh, in you know, as we all know, humanitarian system can only be activated when government declare emergency. But but we know that communities are facing, um, you know, flooding, you know, small, small activity that uh, and events that, you know, we need to respond. Uh, and how do we trigger those responses um, out, outside of the humanitarian system? So with the FALE, that's what uh, I wanted to ground the, the, the sharing is that we often find that our that our sharing of our stories are being directed to where the funding is coming from. You know, we report to donors, we report to INGO, we report to whoever is giving us the funds to uh, do this work. So when we are creating the FALE platform, it's mean that the local system has to make sure that they contributed to the FALE and then they make decisions among themselves, who is going to lead which, you know, wash goes to youth, you know how they decide on that but what we have seen in that in the fale context we have seen the what what uh, happened in tonga response that they had called it uh, cash for crops uh similar to the sharing from the characters tonga uh, i think for this uh, initiative they buy the crops from the local farmers uh and so they bring that in be part of the of the distribution. So there's still some exchange of funding, of money, uh, but it goes to the small scale farmers so that their crops are being part of the distribution of the humanitarian and they call it cash for crops. 
uh, because they want Tonga when they were talking about their experience in this uh, exercise was the fact that they need to continue nurture the culture of self-help uh, and make sure that they recognize the uh, the dependency culture that often comes in with the, you know, the humanitarian kind of work. Uh, and so that's where they wanted to still buy crops from, you know, farmers. Uh, they also do something that they call uh, cash for weaving, where, where the, you know, community will still, um, you know, weave their handicrafts, uh, but the cash goes to them. And then, so with that small initiative that has been, and then when we had the cyclone, um, the twin cyclone in Vanuatu, we had someone from Tonga that we had actually used to deploy as a sharing of the Fale network. Uh, and then when they were sharing their experiences, now with the response in Vanuatu, the, our member there and the Fale led is taking up that experiences and, and they're gonna be developed that to be part of the of the response in Vanuatu because they recognize that in, even in the, in the hurricane, there are still some communities in Vanuatu they were not as, as affected. And so they want to make sure that they buy from the community that they were not affected and be part of the response and the and the you know and the help and how they can see that as something that is being built in to their response. Maybe that's just like one example that I could think of now, Amy. Thank you. That's a great one. Um, Nina, I was just going to ask you to um, add on to or extend on that um, around um, knowledge sharing across the sector here in New Zealand. I'm just interested in your thoughts. Yeah, I think that there's there's really, you know, there's really strong mechanisms in place with which facilitated by SID as well, the humanitarian network. Um, and of course, you know, with, within our government and the coordination mechanisms that exist within that, uh, I think that it's also taking it one step further as well, you know, so there's learning the lessons and there's knowledge sharing, um, and then there's coordinating and cooperating, and uh, and I think that that's, that's one step, one step beyond that as well, and I think that's really challenging. It's one thing to, to share information, but it's quite another to actually coordinate or, or actively cooperate within a sector. And, and I, I would suggest that the, we're moving towards that, uh, I think, really, really strongly. And we can see that over the last decade and sort of the emergence of DRR as a, almost a sector in itself within <laughs> within emergency response um, is, is, you know, moving towards the right direction. Um, you know, mechanisms like the Emergency Alliance, you know, which is coordinating in the fundraising aspect so that um, so that you know, there's a coordinated mechanism whereby the the funding that's raised for a particular event is then distributed based on capacity and capability of the agencies um, on the ground. You know, so it's not just a, uh, a it's not, there's nothing superficial about the distribution. It's it's really based on the capacity of of agencies to respond. So I'd suggest that there's a lot of really positive movement. Um, and there's a, a really strong within New Zealand, we're a small sector, and there's a really strong um, commitment, I would suggest, to, to coordinating and to working together, because everyone wants to, to ensure that we are not uh, getting in each other's ways, and it's really going to be having the greatest impact. But I would suggest that coordination also takes resources, so we all need to be able to to coordinate. But that requires a bit of commitment and a commitment of resources to actually make that um, a reality. 
Thank you. We're going to look at ecosystem-based adaptation and nature-based solutions because the question is around, you know, is there a real place for this given the Pacific's unique natural environment and the rural remote geography of many Pacific communities? So Nina, um, I'm going to ask you um, about some of the the work that uh, you've been involved in in a similar space. Yeah, I think there's a, a couple, particularly from one of our partners in Fiji is the Tutu Rural Training Centre. Um, and this is on the, the beautiful island of Tabiuni. And you'll tell I'm not an agriculturalist because I need to refer to notes for some of the specifics on this. But um, the, and again, I'd just like to build on what Amy was saying about how it's this really whole of community approach. And that's the way in which Tutu operates. And a really important part of their philosophy is integral ecology. You know, they look at the entire person and the entire person and their connection with the entire environment. So, you know, soil health and um, is a huge component and, you know, the, the composting process and then in terms of the training that they offer, it's to do, to do with um, budgeting and small businesses and relationships, you know, they have a couples program and um, the, the, the spiritual material, physical health, you know, all of these aspects are part of their their, their whole approach and, and taking this this and the connection with the Vanua uh, and that's indigenous perspective on the connection with the land there in Fiji. And particularly a couple of things which they've been working on um, is in relation to, to getting supplies of seedlings. Um, so this is one thing which they noticed after Winston as well was that, you know, so many crops were wiped out so quickly and there was a need to have seed banks seedling banks, I suppose, that were able to be um, deployed into places that were most severely hit with a great deal of, um, of speed to be able to build up the crops. Uh, so they've now got um, these, these seedling stores that they, they constantly replenish and so that they can be used within the country as well. And then they also have some other innovative um, techniques to do with uh, building climate resilient crop varieties um, wind resistant planting um, so they have so they have this technique where they are able to to train the the trunks of crops to to grow in a certain direction or grow in a, a sort of odd direction and this apparently is really effective um, to do with for high winds in the cyclone context um, to stop the trees from entirely just being knocked over uh, and they also did some really interesting experiments or in Winston in particular with they they have a huge yakona uh, plantation and they stripped all of the leaves you know to 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 build to take away some of that wind resistance and um and that was able to save the plantation they still had to do a lot of work recovery afterwards but essentially they were able to to put in these really innovative agricultural techniques which allowed them to recover more quickly and to now be able to to share this knowledge and to be able to um, be a source of of seedlings and seeds and really quick regeneration for for a broader for a broader than just their own their own gardens Fantastic. Yeah, there's similar projects going on. Um, I, I'm sure many of um, yeah. the participants here have probably got similar projects going on. And I know um, our team, uh, Rachel and the team uh, at Save New Zealand are working, um, have been working with partners in um, Fiji and Solomon Islands and um, some amazing uh, garden projects where you know, climate adapted crops and and 
yeah, it's again a similar whole of community approach, the crops, so there's composting just some amazing work going on and I'm sure everyone here has got some great examples of that. Um, so we're going to move on to um, a question for Camille. Young people have raised the issue of climate change and the need for greater climate action and brought a lot of attention here in Aotearoa and on a glo global scale. But this hasn't always led to their voices being included in policies or political decision making. Um, should be should more be done to ensure children and young people are more visible in climate policy? Camille? I think in terms of my own experience in trying to get my own personal youth voice heard with the Aotearoa government and writing to MPs or filling out surveys and doing petitions, I do believe that there is a widen, widening gateway for youth voice to be heard by politicians and um, decision makers in terms of like ways that charities or NGOs like present things like the Save the Children Youth Survey present it and are like, hey, what do you think we will take it to the decision makers um, or we'll try and amplify your voice. So I do think that, yeah, there is a widening gateway for youth voice to be heard but what we don't have enough of especially is the next step which is governments and decision makers actually implementing what they're hearing from the youth I think the government is hearing what the youth want and they're hearing us at the steps of parliament but they're not necessarily they're acknowledging but they're not necessarily acting um <clears throat> and I think the reason for that is because to be honest, it's not profitable or that um, wanted by the government to act on youth voice. Many youth voice don't have the privilege and the money and the resources to aid the government in any way. We don't have the public visibility. If youth raise their voices and the government doesn't respond, there aren't any real consequences because youth aren't like up there like complaining and like putting a really bad name on the government because we're younger and overall in society, we have a lower profile and we're like lower in the hegemony of privilege and who's actually seen as important um I think so yeah the I think the government is increasingly listening to our voices but like listening and actually acting are different things and I think we need more acting following listening um I think one solution for this is to I know there's a lot of people working on this um idea at the moment but to lower the voting age to 16 um because that is a simple way for their act to actually create motivation for the government to actually listen because if they're hearing what these youth want but they're like they can't actually vote anyway so it doesn't really matter like if we do or don't do what they say however if they're if um the voting age is lowered to 16 then um the government obviously wants to maximize votes and so they will actually adhere to youth voice at least a little bit more and actually look at oh what are these are some of our potential voters what do they actually care about and how do we implement that into our policy so that more youth and more people can vote for our respective parties or um get involved in politics and voting as well so i think that's the one solution that i just came up with off the top of my head but yeah i think that we need more um actual action on what youth have very clearly stated a lot of different programs that they actually do want yeah fantastic and what role do you think um children's rights organizations have in ensuring that that happens Kim mm. what do you think well we have to I think first we have to walk that talk so you know I think as Camille's Camille has just said really well <clears throat> it is about starting with listening. And I think child rights organizations have to do that. We have to do that ourselves first 
Um, but also, I think, you know, we should hold politicians accountable. Um, in, you know, globally, um, the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child just recently published its general comment on children's rights in the environment with a special focus on climate change. That's a mouthful. But basically, we have a, a global document from the UN outlining exactly what the commitments should be a rights-based commitment to um, children in climate change. Um, and it details the urgent need to address the adverse effects of environmental degradation and climate change in order for children to fulfill their rights. Um, so there, it's there globally. The commitment is there in the Pacific. The 2050 strategy for the Blue Pacific specifically commits um, to listening to children and youth um, in general. And, and um, I think that's that's especially important when it comes to climate change. Um, so I think child rights organizations and the NGO community more broadly, we have to be calling politicians out on this. Um, and I don't think it can be just ad hoc events um, moving forward. I think we need to look at institutionalized structures. Um, it could be lowering a voting age. That's quite an institutional way of um, of embedding children's voice or youth voice. But there are other ways as well, I think, um, to bringing young people together regularly with support um, and, you know, with support from the government, from the NGO community, from the private sector um, to discuss among themselves and decision making, decision makers on issues that affect them. Um, we've done things like have um, institutionalized children's parliaments or youth parliaments kind of actualized across uh, an entire country um, at different levels um, that really help to empower children in, in a government process, but also forces you know that space for, um, for decision makers and politicians to listen to children. But as Camille was also saying, then year on year, if it's institutionalized, hold those politicians accountable to what they're committing to when they're in front of children and youth. So you know, I think child rights organizations can help governments design and implement those kinds of forums and activities um, with children and youth. And I think, you know, we have good models for this. Um, I'll give an example from Vanuatu. Save the Children um, is doing something we call Shift Shack, which um, is a fun name for, for helping children um, and youth that are climate activists in their communities already. Um, so identifying groups of youth that exist um, and then giving them the tools to help plan, create and implement climate campaigns. So um, help them think through what they can do as activists. And so we're starting this model in Vanuatu now and going into next year um, to help um, advocate and campaign for environmental and climate justice. And I hope that this is a way that, you know, we empower children and youth to engage um, and to have the tools and not to speak for them, but to just give them the opportunities to speak for themselves on these issues. They do have solutions. We're hearing it today. So I think we need to make sure that we call out politicians on that platform and the actions around it. Fantastic. And we've got a similar um, opportunity. Uh, the the team here have, we, we did an online panel last year with the climate change minister ahead of COP27 and, and repeating a similar approach this year ahead of COP28. And again, as you say, Kim, it's that holding, it's it, those repeat kind of events or opportunities then enable you to continue the conversation and build on what, well, what did you do last year or what, you know, what what's changed in this space? Uh, Camille and, and the team are, are all involved in that as well. Siali, 
What about the Indigenous efforts um, to adapt to climate change um, that could be better supported or upscaled potentially by INGOs? And, and how do we best foster connections between communities or advocates and ourselves? Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Um, I think this uh, perhaps just add to a number of experiences that are already being shared. Uh, this is this is where the localization um, agenda comes to uh, to play a big role uh, when it comes to indigenous and traditional knowledge, because we have seen the and and perhaps the the best um, example to help explain this particular area is around a lot of research, um, data collections. That, that is required by our humanitarian work uh, that, that are often done in a way that is all with good intention, uh, but, but we have seen that it's being, it, it, does, not, it does not embrace the, the concept of how do, we, how do we let local actors collect data uh, and, and then work with our international partners perhaps to you know write it up but engage our local and, and particularly our young people in the data collections help them participate in the analysis of it uh, because this is where you can see the traditional understanding and the context of our local communities are being brought in and in and, and, and the experiences in the Pacific we are not a, we are not in uh, we are we are very oral culture we talk until you know somebody comes home, but we 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 often don't document some of the work that we do. But if we are not careful, it's become it's become an extractive exercise uh, that we still find that you know we collect data, someone analyzes that, but often that analysis is comes from the lens of and understanding experience of the person writing it. And unfortunately, those written materials are being used by donors to frame the kind of program in terms of what is it that is going to be supporting uh, you know, communities in our Pacific. And so it's that mismatch will continue to be going in cycle unless we recognize that traditional and indigenous knowledge is actually with people. Uh, and and so the way that they that that we can actually bring out those understanding and those knowledge is to engage them in that process. Uh, but but still, as I said earlier, still we we look at these things as an academic exercise, or you know we we embrace people with doctorate, uh, uh, masters in whatever development studies. Uh, but how do we make sure that we we take community from their experiences that they can make sense of what does the solution looks like for them uh, and how we can channel that to the broader development, um, you know, a policy setting uh, of the donors and those that are in the development lens uh, to bring that back to the community. Uh, and I, and I use the, and I use the, the research, uh, action research or whatever we want to call it as an example of this is where we can actually make sure that the community are learning because they they don't they don't learn that from textbooks. Those experiences come from the living of of the impact of climate change. 
And unfortunately, we don't see that in many written materials, but we can witness that in their art. Their songs, their dance, and everything we can actually thought that they don't understand. But if you listen to the, the music, the you know, the poetry, it's all about how they are they are moving internally, how they have left their home, how they have, you know, all that kind of amazing stories are, are being translated to, to their art and their songs and their music. But how do we bring that into the development lens so that it's being informing? the work that we do in the humanitarian space. Naka. Naka. So how do we do that though, Siali? Like that, that is a, some amazing points and, and stories. And it's a bit like when Kim mentioned that we need to actually listen ourselves first, that we have to walk the talk as well. So if we're going to include children and young people in decision-making and, and things that we need to actually action that ourselves. We had a good example of that in the partnership that we had with the humanitarian advisory group and Australian NGOs. And so what they do is that they get funding from DFAT to support this work. And that's what they do. They do research around humanitarian. Uh, and so they partner with us. And so the, the funding that actually get them to get someone from one academic person to come in and do the study in the Pacific. They give this to us. And so we commission that to our partner in country, our members in the country. And what they do, they engage the, the youth uh, in that particular community. We have done this in Vanuatu and we have done this in Fiji uh, uh, as part of the work that we did uh, with the uh, UNICEF in the monitoring of the impact of the TC Herald. And so we did the same, take the same approach. Give the funding to the young people to go and collect the data. Amazing thing that we have seen is that when they come out of this exercise, they understand the dynamics and the vulnerability of their community far more than they had ever done before. Because they take these things um, you know, for granted. They live in this community. They thought that they know it all. But when you actually give them a structured questionnaire that they go and ask those you know, elderly people about how they live, it brings a different dynamics to their understanding of that of that context. Collect the data and then and then the you know the hack uh, team helped the you know structure the analysis of it. They done the analysis and then um hack helped put that together. And so we have a number of publications coming out come out from this exercise that speaks to how we see our young people are being embraced. And, you know, we talk about how we see, um, you know, young people, The we, as we have heard examples of how we work with education system. Unfortunately, there are some of our young people that have actually decided to drop out from this formal system. And they're sitting around in our communities, doing what they do, helping out in the garden, on, you know, running around errands for the elderly people, but this is where you can still engage and make their lives, understand the context in terms of where thus their interventions as community citizens will make a difference in their life. So now they're, after this whole exercise, you started to see them more participating in you know, community-based organization. They are part of the emergency committee from their, from their organizations. 
and they are now representing their community when it comes to you know discussions here in Suba. Uh, and so this is how we have seen them progress. Uh, and I think that the agenda of localization need to be rooted in how we do things, not just talk about it, but grant, granted in our practice and how we do things, even in some of the practices that we thought that is academic or scientific in nature, it can still be simplified to engage, to be able for our access of our young people from our community to participate. Thank you. Fantastic, thank you. Can I, We've got a question. Um, oh, Kim, did you want to add something? Do you mind if I do? I'm just going to jump in, Amy. Sorry. Um, I just wanted to, because it's such an, a great approach that Ciali is talking about in terms of really, um, you know, activating young people around um, research and assessment, and and you know, it's it has that dual that dual benefit of not just getting the the right information um, and the right analysis, but also giving those young people this like a, a skill set that they didn't have before, but we do this a lot around schools and I would echo what Ciali said, it, it can be a very powerful approach um, where we're working with young, with, with children in schools to assess how safe their school is and how prepared their school is for disasters. Um, and it, I think for the NGO community, it's important to note that those, when you, when you relinquish the power of that assessment to, to the people, you know, in the communities, um, you cannot make this a neat and clean, you know, one sector approach um, it naturally lends itself um, to multi-sector approaches. When you ask children to do these kinds of assessments of schools, for example, they don't just talk about, we don't have safe water. They also talk about, um, you know, like the the latrines are actually too far away and it's pre creating a safety issue for, for girls or we don't have latrines at all. Or they'll talk about um, violence in the home that makes them unsafe. It unpacks a, a bunch of issues. Um, that are important issues, um, but it starts with listening first and, and giving them the power to make those choices. And I'll give one more example of um, how we're using kind of community um, structures to do assessments, which I think is really great. Just coming from the Vanuatu um, cyclone response, we have we quickly activated after the cyclone um, those CDCCs, the, the climate change committees at the community level. Um, via mobile phones with a very quick and dirty survey um, just to ask them what they saw around them as the impact in their communities. And within 24 hours, we had an assessment, we had assessment information coming directly from the people affected um, right back into Port Villa, activating our, um, able to activate our resources around what they were telling us they needed and what the impact had been way faster than trying to get people out on a boat um, or a plane or you know a plane to remote um, islands. So I do think it is about giving people the right tools and the power to to speak out about it. Fantastic. That's a great example. Terrible acronym, but that's <laughs> forgive you. These acronyms that everyone loves so much. Um, we've got a question from some of the partic participants. How do panelists think the long-term existential threat of sea level rise, et cetera, is best addressed in the Pacific? Nina, do you want to take that big chunky one on? Um, yeah, I, I think that we're not the ones to answer that question. Um, and maybe there's a part of my answer in that. Um, but I would say that I think it's quite phenomenal. I mean, really world first, what Tuvalu, the Tuvalu pa Parliament um, just recently did. So, um, and you'll excuse my 
my really rough sort of um, paraphrasing, I suppose, but my understanding is, you know, that um, legally they've they've ensured that even if the land mass of Tuvalu, those nine um, islands are no longer uh, above sea, uh, that they will continue to exist as a country, as an entity, as a, you know, and that's preserving the culture and the language and, and their their identity. And I think that that's, you know, an incredible um, example that we can we can look to. Um, but but I suppose my, my answer would be that let's look to to those communities and and see what what are they saying and what are they wanting um, because sometimes it's not what we expect you know um, and and that that one example from Tuvalu is a is a is an amazing one. Siali, have you got anything to add to that? Um, I I may have I may have to bring my response to a later question that you have I have given um, in, in the in the list of questions uh, Amy uh, speaks to relocation uh, and and this is something that that we that we struggle with because in terms of the sovereignty uh, you know the examples from Tuvalu Kiribati and and others uh, where they have already identified the government has already identified that migration is not an issue. It is the last resort. But one of the things that we have recognized is that oftentimes those decisions are done without community consultations or community prior consenting process. Um, and so the civil society that within our Bianco network, we still go in and, and ask uh, that the community and civil society at the local level uh, generated kind of discussions uh, because we felt like that oftentimes we see reactions to respond to climate resilience, uh, climate-related disaster, sea level rising uh, in a way that is very ad hoc, uh, that, that it required a structured conversation within community until they understand the impact and, and, and how they can be able to prepare themselves. If they choose to move with, with the science, what science is telling us is that we are, we are, we are not, uh, I don't think that there's anything else that we can do, uh, you know, unless, unless we have seen, um, you know, some of our countries doing uh, landfill to some of their land or extend their their land to you know in Tuvalu claim reclaim the land by doing a whole lot of uh, um, infrastructure feeling to you know counter but but it's very you know you or we already see that they are fighting against a fight that it's uh, I don't know how long are they going to make in the in the questions asking around sustainability. So for for those of us that are kind of forward thinking, you know, what is it that we need to do now? Some of those, you know, and 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 for the realistic uh, reality check, we go to COP, for example, and keep on asking that we maintain the 1.5 degree, um, you know, in terms of climate emergency from the Pacific, but we don't see any change at all in any of the of the polluters. Uh, behavior. Uh, we're still receiving funds from Australia, for example, but then we keep on demanding that they do a little bit more on their, you know, um, fuel and all that, fossil fuel. 
we don't see much of that. Yeah, we have seen the political dynamics in New Zealand, for example, of a new government that we don't know where their positions in terms of climate change. So those geopolitical issues is 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 need to be need to be discussed and 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 woven into some of the work that we do in humanitarian. Otherwise, uh, we are fighting against something that it's unsustainable uh, because we will we will not be able to keep the levels, you know, the sea level rise. We sympathize with community by saying we're gonna stay until whenever that. But I think from our approach is that keep community informed so that whatever decision that they make is make from a, a, an informed pace. If they are to move to New Zealand or Australia, take up the goodwill that are coming now. So they say climate uh, migration, if they do, are we are we giving uh, enough support in terms of education so they are not migrating to New Zealand or Australia to big fruits? They're mm -hmm. going there to be part of a bigger economy, contributing to a much better uh, way of, you know, of generating income for their family. So those are the things that we need to, and I think this is where the discussions around, um, you know, supporting the school curriculum. Uh, around not not just the science of of climate change no the the curriculum in terms of if you are to move wherever you want to move do you have the capacity to adopt and adapt to the new environment mm. that you are going to move there so so i think the the conversation need to when we ask about the sustainability of you know climate change and all that and the high level sea rise some of that is something that we cannot actually control right now. Mm. But what we can control is the preparations of our people. If they choose to move, they move with that kind of level of dignity. They can just go in. We already have helped them prepare themselves to that kind of situation. I'm getting emotional in this kind of conversation, but I think that this is important to throw it out there. Thank you. Thank you. Amy, can I just add, and I think um, Fiali just said, you know, these solutions are often ad hoc and um, require something, I think, more sustained. And I, I would just I, I would just put a plug in here for social protection as a, you know, a, an, a key part of a solution to um, these these longer term issues. And, um, you know, it is about giving resources and support and safety nets. Um, in an institutionalized way um, to communities that are vulnerable to these changes and letting them make the choice as a community or as a family as to what is best for them. And I think um, social protection and to some extent integrating kind of a shock responsive social protection or a cash first approach to our humanitarian responses is, is also needed and we should be leaning into that in the Pacific. Um, so I would just put a plug in for those kinds of approaches that allow for voice and choice, right? Um, in these yeah. issues, yeah. Um, we're getting close to the end of our session. So I'm going to um, wrap up and just ask um, you all to, to give your final thoughts um, around this topic um, and particularly with a view of forward focused um, looking into the future and where there is opportunity um, and potential for, 
for, for change. And then we'll, we'll finish up. Nina. Yeah, thanks, Amy. Um, I think, you know, and I think um, that's a really heartfelt sharing that we, we heard from Siali. And it, it's really important for us to to look at that bigger picture and, and to, I suggest, to make sure that we're not perpetuating the, the very situation that we're trying to, to work um, against, I suppose. Uh, and, and that example, which Sally shared as well, you know, around sort of in emergency contexts, uh, and now there's, you know, no young people to, to be doing sort of the cleanup and all of those important roles, and many are sort of come into to low wage contexts, you know, overseas, and these these are bigger pressures, but these are having a real frontline impact um, on people. And I, I think that it's it's really important that we don't lose lose um, a vision of that, and we don't that we 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 look at it from this bigger perspective, and we make sure that the efforts that we're we're contributing towards. Um, and I suppose the question was posed. A question was posed from one of our partners um, who does. It's amazing work with a teak forest and it's you know apparently teak is fantastic for carbon sequestration uh, and and yet they were saying you know we don't want to get into that because ethically can we you know when our our livelihoods and, and our people are being affected by climate change you know that that, that doesn't sit well we can't ethically hold our heads high and, and get into a carbon market with, where bigger powers can buy, you know, some carbon from our, our forest, which is meant to be for our people and the benefit of our people. So I think it's that sort of ethical question that we have to ask ourselves. And it's these bigger um, looking at these forces and, and I suppose making sure that that what we're doing is is not perpetuating these power imbalances or perpetuating um, patterns of sort of paternalistic um, relationships that that have have historically been in place for for so long. Um, and these are really big, hard questions. And yet, it is people you know on the front line that are paying the price. You know, um, so so I think how do we hold both of those? You know, how do we hold ourselves to account in in the different spaces in which we in which we sit and hold our our governments to account as well? You know, as members of civil society and keeping the voices of of youth um, first and foremost in in the centre of the conversation. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much, Nina. Um, Kim. Thanks. It's been a it's been nice to be able to talk about this today. So thanks for bringing us together. Um, I would say three things. As a NGO community, as a civil society, let's remember our own power. We do have power, um, and let's think about how we're wielding that. Um, I think we could we can come together more on these issues. It's great to see the interest in it today. How do we channel that um, in into the future and influencing? on these issues that we've talked about today around, you know, local leadership, local local decisions, um, you know, inclusive um, ways of working and approaches um, from design all the way through kind of data collection analysis and into implementation. You know, how are we how are we working together to bring that power together to to give the voice to those who deserve it the most in this space? Um, and then I think you know holding. Um, others accountable is one thing, but also as a community holding each other accountable um, and making sure that we're all walking this talk um, and, and able to have a space where we can say, you know, to each other that there's a better way to do some of this work. Um, I think that would be the second 
call out, I would say. And the last, the last thing I would say, just taking away from what we've all been circling around a little bit and coming back to what Camille was saying earlier about um, climate anxiety, like just remembering um, as individuals and as teams as we do this work, um, that this is what people are living, that this is what we are living, um, and really think about in an empathetic way, um, you know, how this is impacting people's mental health um, as much as it's impacting our, you know, the, the physical world around us. It also definitely has an impact on how we think and what we're thinking about. And that is particularly true um, for children and youth. I remember um, talking to a family after um, the twin cyclones in March in Vanuatu and their young children had been hiding in the kitchen um, when the roof was blown off. And in the middle of a cyclone, the family huddled together and ran to their neighbor's house. And I can only imagine um, for young for young children how traumatizing that can be. And you know, they're gonna grow up and either fight or flight. And um, I hope that as a community, we're lifting up um, a space for, for that climate fight. Thanks. Thank you so much, Kim, and thank you to everyone. Um, Siali, I'd love to um, end with your thoughts. I think there's already a lot of good uh, ideas floating, uh, and this is why this kind of conversation is important because we actually um, pick up some of the some of the learning from some of the other uh, examples of projects that are uh, going on the ground. I think my takeaway, uh, I'm I'm quite uh, taken by the you know the conversations coming, the voice of our young people, the anxiety uh, that has been generated by um, you know climate related disaster, but but you know those anxiety is actually triggered by fear and uncertainty, uh, and this is where a lot of the work that we do around policy because that can help. In terms of you know, if you have your house blown away, uh, do we have policies in place that kind of give us a fair idea? What are the process that you would take uh, to help you with that? Um, some of those inform information uh, much broader than just like uh, humanitarian work uh, that are in place within our common system because that's what they're supposed to be doing to make sure that information are simplified, information are available to our community, access to information is crucial, accountability of that information and transparent of government system and processes is there that can guide our young people so that the less of the fear comes from not knowing or the uncertainty that is beyond the horizon. And, and you know, amazing work that you guys are doing in bringing our young people because this is where they need to be part of the conversation because a lot of us are getting old and we will not be here for too long, but at least we are already aligning our young people to take over from us. Uh, and the other point that I just want to make is the localization agenda. There is a place for everyone, INGO, local NGOs and everyone. How do we complement the role that we play, but put the life and the experiences of our local at the center so that they can guide the intervention that we had to support their resilience. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Inaka. Inaka, and thank you very much everyone for joining us. I'm going to uh, end with Camille's um, thoughts here, uh, as well as the community and indigenous 
based approach, what we need is a shift in decision makers' values. We need to move from profit-driven decision to people-driven decisions and policies. And I think we'd all agree on that. Thank you for listening to Useful Outsiders. Please subscribe, share, rate and review and help us to spread the word. We'd love to hear from you, so if you have any feedback or ideas for future episodes, please get in touch. You can find our email in the episode notes. We hope you'll join us for the next episode.